American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. The neoliberal playbook, which was supposed to replace the old Keynesian one, had many different pages. But when you boil it down, it really only had two chapters, and the one followed from the other. The first said essentially this. The measure of all things, particularly uh, the measure of all value, uh, particularly in a diverse society with all kinds of interests, all kinds of people, all kinds of claims to what is right and what is wrong and what is deserved and what is not deserved, the measure of all value that should drive the policymaker or the judge who's deciding a case, like the famous judge Richard Posner, who helped enunciate this doctrine most clearly, the measure of all value should be the economic value and the total economic value in particular that is yielded to the economy as a whole by any particular decision. And that is what a judge should be thinking about when he makes a decision. That's what a policymaker should be thinking about. He shouldn't necessarily be thinking about uh, whether or not this is going to improve things for a million workers uh, as opposed to one Wall Street magnate. Uh, if a million workers uh, get $1,000 more each um, with one decision or one policy, but one Wall Street magnate uh, would make 10 billion more, well, then you should choose the 10 billion because that amounts to a total bigger gain or a bigger gain overall uh, than what the workers would get if you chose a policy that supported them. And then the second, uh, the second element uh, of their playbook followed in some ways from the first one, which is that the market should ultimately be the ruling metaphor for society not the citizen, uh, not the older commonwealth, um, not even society itself as a kind of fabric of uh, different interests of families and um, interest groups um, like unions, but the market itself. Uh, the market itself should drive policy making. So when the market becomes an end in itself, when it becomes a sort of abstracted thing uh, that is driving political and economic decisions. Then it becomes very easy if everybody starts to believe in that idea and think that, that what we need to do is uh, always ensure that, that the market is free and that the market is healthy. Then it becomes very easy to write off the consequences of decisions uh, by saying, but this is what we had to do for the, uh, the health of the market. So when we have tremendous shifts in wealth uh, in the 1980s and again in the 2000s, uh, amid the growing financialization of society. It's the market, it's simply the, uh, the consequences of the free market. Uh, likewise, when we have stock booms that turn into busts, uh, or when we have the proliferation of new kinds of financial products that don't actually seem to serve any productive end. Again, these are written off as the natural consequences of the free market. And that, of course, has its own tremendous consequences. Uh, that the cover uh, that the market provides for these kinds of transformations, these kinds of shifts of wealth and income. Within politics, where uh, many of the policies ultimately get decided that allow these kinds of things, these kinds of transformations to happen, what we see is that the market as an ideal really runs triumphant through not just the United States, but many of the Western democracies in the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. Democrats 
uh, after being defeated in three consecutive presidential elections, 1980, 84, and 1988, really visibly changed their ideas, their policy proposals. And they start to emphasize market-based proposals to problems like uh, the continuing uh, derangement of the American healthcare industry, uh, the continuing issue uh, of welfare and poverty in America, crime, and other sorts of issues. They start to sound in some ways like Republicans. But when they do that, of course, the Republicans who want to differentiate themselves from the Democrats really uh, are, to some extent, out of answers. Uh, what had been a very vibrant paradigm that seems, at least, to be able to answer the problems of the 1970s and the 1990s and the early 21st century for the Republicans has stopped supplying new ideas to a large extent. Often the answer uh, that differentiates themselves from the Democrats is to simply say, well, we'll cut taxes even further or we'll kick even more uh, unwed mothers off of welfare. We will lock up more people in prison. And this ultimately is not a a particularly persuasive philosophy in and of itself by the 1990s, which is part of how we account for the success of William Jefferson Clinton. And so in Clinton, we have this incredibly ironic figure, uh, a president who to a large extent strips away some of the most visible institutions uh, and, and interests created by the great society reforms of the 1960s. Uh, even though he himself uh, runs in 1992, as a child of the liberal 1960s. And in Clinton also, uh, we have this uh, ironic figure uh, of the president who runs uh, as a sort of free market uh, reformer, uh, but manages to deliver often through uh, methods that borrow from the New Deal to no small extent, who manages to deliver a kind of prosperity in the United States and a kind of shift of income back towards the middle and lower classes, such as we had not seen since the 1950s. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm -hmm.